What a pleasant surprise. Ever since the Urquan made it a fellow slave species, we have missed the human. You arrive just in time for the Festival of a Thousand Screams. We welcome you with open appendages. Your participation in the ceremony is most fortuitous. As we pour your steaming parts from your breached husk, you will cry with the force that pleases the mighty deities Dogar and Kazan. Then we will address our inquiries and receive deific guidance. Glorious! <laughs> anyway, welcome back to another episode of Table Topics. My name is Justin Brown, where my advantage is in the early game. To my right, as always, Tom Wiles. I have no advantage. He has no advantage because his homeworld is currently being sat on. Uh, and if you couldn't tell by our thinly veiled references, this is going to be a episode where Twilight Imperium 4th Edition is heavily discussed. But before we get too deep into that, uh, Tom, do you have any uh, news, trials, tribulations for this week? Uh, our team at Pub Trivia took second place and got a sweet $10 gift certificate. All right, congratulations. Um, yeah, we, we've been we've been rocking Pub Trivia pretty hard lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, take that, Team Honey. Take I, that, Team Honey. I hope you're one of the eight people listening to this right now. I think you're so smart. Anyway, moving on, Tom, uh, to the news. Um, I have uh, uh, one piece of news and then just something to complain about because I, I need an outlet right now. Um, as for the news... Sierra Madre Games, the company headed by Phil F***ing Eklund, has sold off, Tom. He has sold his game to a company called Ion Games in Sweden. Uh, he says that uh, a Game Salute, um, they had some a bit of drama from a Kickstarter fulfillment earlier this year, uh, cost him a lot of money. He says he will not be able to pay off the uh, the taxes, so he needs he needs to sell. He needs to liquidate all assets. And the funny thing about this is that looking up Ion Game Design, wow, holy crap, that is primitive. Looking up Ion Game Design, they've published like two games also through Sierra Madre. This is the least. Phil Eklund looking thing I have ever seen. Those are like weird little... So our listener, uh, to our listener, we are looking at the website for this company, which looks like some kind of like WordPress type thing. And uh, we're not currently on the page, but the last page had like some Babylon 5-ish looking ships with like habitat rigs and like just weird kind of like ramming spikes and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, I don't want to be uh, slanderous here because um, Phil King Eklund seems like the kind of person to to get litigious. Hey man, the the slander laws are different in Germany too. They can go after you. You don't got no First Amendment. The, The reason I bring this up is because the company sold to has a very bare bones website their only game releases are through were originally through sierra madre so sierra madre sold themselves to another entity to basically avoid paying taxes oh that happens all the time i i I understand it's not to avoid paying taxes it's probably 
free up capital. So yeah, I I just I just bring it up because anybody who has played Phil Eklund games, anybody yeah. who who knows Phil Eklund, it's just kind of ironic, and we live in a post ironic uh, <laughs> a post ironic world. And um, I could never really understand. There was a recent discussion where one of the Eklunds, Phil or his brother, said that a businessman is someone who only deals with uh, persuasion and employs no force whatsoever, and that if a businessman were to employ force, they would no longer be a businessman; they would actually be considered a politician (laughs) and among the like kind of right-wing libertarian set there is this idea that all law is intentionally coercive and violent that i find somewhat interesting it's a little bit like saying that all food is inherently poisonous or something like that yeah i uh they're still producing games you know the company is just being consumed by another company uh, so expect High Frontier 4th Edition and the uh, 36th uh, redesign of the rules in well, 2020. Well, that's going to make all of us 2nd Edition or 3rd Edition buyers feel real great about our investment. But, um, you know, as I have continuously failed to learn, apparently, board game speculation is a terrible idea. No one should do it. Moving on, Tom, I, I need an outlet for rage, Tom. The worst kept secret for buying old games is shopgoodwill.com. You know, obviously Goodwill gets a lot of old garbage from... Uh, is there a, a website called shopgoodwill.com? That that, so that is their eBay ripoff auction store. And that is where I get a lot of my vintage games, uh, including like retro games, Super Nintendo, NES, because uh, there are fewer eyes on it than eBay. There are still a lot of eyes. Um, I wish it was a better kept secret like it was in uh, 2011. But anyway, I, I purchased a game called... Uh, Dragon Master off of uh, Shop Goodwill. It was designed by uh, Jerry Darcy. Milton Bradley published 1981. Uh, Jerry Darcy, I feel, is kind of like an unsung hero of board games because he released uh, Blockhead, which may be one of the very first 3D block piling dexterity games. So before Jenga, before Balzac, before uh, oh my art. oh my goodness Scotland Yard for six forty nine um, our viewers should our listeners should really get ahead on this uh, all right to so the seven of you listening to this right now just stay off of Shop Goodwill that's my secret no y'all y'all need to get off this um, but the, the reason why I wanted this game Tom it's a trick taking game uh, a re- Dragon Master mm-hmm. is a trick taking it is a redesign of Contract Hearts uh, Le Barbu um, On Guard I think uh, it's it's Hearts but the declarer announces a contract, and everyone tries to avoid taking tricks of that contract. If you take tricks from that contract, you pay the declarer. The reason why I wanted this game is because it has it has the best um, production value of a game I've seen published from like the year 2000 and, and prior. Um, the cards are a little bit smaller than tarot cards, and they have this lavish lavish art by illustrator. Bob Pepper. Oh, Tom, Bob. Yeah, Tom, look at look at this. Bob, you dug deep, Bob. 1981. Tom, feel how thick this card stock is. Uh, this is these have held up. Kind of kind of a lame card back. But... Oh yeah, the card back's lame. But hey, what do you expect? They didn't have a uh, double sided uh, you know printing back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so Bob Pepper was kind of prolific in the 60s and 70s. Uh, he made these. Um... If you could find a sleeve that would go onto these weirdly sized cards, then these would be great sleeves. Yeah. Um, wow, that's yeah. a cool. 
whole picture yeah. right there. Yeah, Bob Pepper was an illustrator um, primarily for Ballantine books. Uh, he did a whole bunch of fantasy and sci-fi illustrations. Um, I swear, our our listener, you have definitely seen this man's art before. If you have seen any kind of like weird, trippy, proggy kind of art from like a, a bad sci-fi or a good fantasy book. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in, instead of using um, just like counters for money, it has these uh, these gems. And unlike the generic board game gems, these are uh, uniform size, they stack, and they're made from, like, a really uh, thick and durable plastic. And it's just... So what was the rage? So the rage is, Tom, when I won this game for a song, it normally goes for 40 50 sometimes $60. Um, it's It has recently been reprinted by... Uh, by Restoration Games. In in new art, I do not like the new art. It's called Indulgence. And it's just it's not oh, bad. That's indulgence. Yeah, it's not oh, okay. it's not bad. It's just kind no, of No, it's it's pretty pretty blah. It, like, it's it's generic. It's mediocre. Yeah. It's nothing compared to like the neon colors of um you know the Ralph Bakshi looking uh, art of the original edition. Well nothing against the apparent new edition um but looking at the dragon master cards oh they just jump out oh i've i have this is all first appearance justin we didn't rehearse this justin didn't talk about it but like this this game is calling to me folks like i want to live there (laughs) like you know i want to get on a horse and go there right now and, like, the Indulgence one, it just looks like a Ren Fair. And it doesn't have the decency to look like a bad Ren Fair. Like, you know how those Bloodbound cards, those look like a bad Ren Fair. Like, the Ren Fair you go to and, like, you know, the fat people from the website show up, you know, stuffed into their stuffed into their corsets and their kilts and their coats of armor and things like that. Yeah, yeah Blood, Bloodbound's a great game. Uh, <laughs> check it out if you can, Fantasy Flight Games. But get the old edition, the one with the bad art. Yes, like, de- get, look, we are connoisseurs of both good art and bad art. <laughs> if if you make sincere bad art, I will love you forever. Uh, so, Tom, when they shipped me this, um, this game, they wrapped tape, packing tape, <laughs> around <laughs> the entire <laughs> box. <laughs> and... You so they just shipped that to you. They didn't put it in a box well, or so, anything. No, no, they they did. They did put it in a box. They weren't they weren't as uh, terrible um, as people who will just like wrap up a game uh, uh. in paper and ship it to you. Those people, there's a special layer of hell if you are the type of person that just puts brown wrapping paper on a board game and expects that to fly. Or Tom, I've actually seen horror stories where somebody will just get like the game shipped and there'll be a big old stamp on the on the corner. All right. Like, Satan is waiting for you. But, yeah, they just wrapped um, masking tape, uh, you know, packing tape, around the entire box. I could have, I could understand if they just did the corners to keep it from opening. Maybe a rubber band? That would have been preferable. Justin, yeah, they just didn't want your sweet cards and, like, doodads to, I, to I, spill out. I can't believe it. This is, this is like, the best-looking copy I've seen of this game. And, and sure... It's it's just a box. It's also but, translucent tape. They didn't use like yeah. you know duct tape. It's we'll just I, I I don't understand. I don't understand if. And a word to the wise for people are if our listener is uh, shipping a game anytime soon. Painters tape. Learn it. Know it. Love it. Yeah, paint, painters tape. When you pull it up, it doesn't take the art with it. Um, so 
Tom, thank you for indulging me in my little outburst. I need to get that off my chest. Yo, you better bring that game around, dude. Like that game looks legit. Uh, yes, I will. Um, I I I want to uh, Walmart. Uh, this is another thing I want to uh, bring up. I hate advertising for Walmart. They're an evil company, but they are selling uh, crayon boxes for like twenty five to fifty cents a piece. And I've seen a lot of people online. Literally walking out with hundreds of these things. For what? To make um, portable component containers. One of their crayon boxes will fit an entire uh, tack set. Okay. And while you have a, t- a travel tack already, you know, if you're one of the people who doesn't, just put like a quarter in one of these crayon boxes and a bunch of pieces, mm-hmm. you have a portable tack set yep. for, for $2. Um, As and- an interesting note for... When it comes to board game packaging. I'm somebody that has looked into, like, ensuring the old board game collection. Okay. In my research, I've learned that, like, you have to be very careful about what policy you get and what company you're dealing with, what underwriter. Because many underwriters uh, will treat board game boxes as not first impression evidence that there's anything inside the box. Okay, interesting. (laughs) You actually have to, like, document the components inside. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that they don't consider the box to be part of the game itself. They consider the box to be packaged. Yeah, and... and, Go ahead. And and I think that's why... uh, Goodwill did this. It's um, it's it kind of goes back to you know my my days as a little tyke playing NES games. Yeah, you know, when you buy Super Mario Brothers three, you rip out the manual, you pull out the game, and then your mom just tosses the box in the trash because. And I think it's more of an American thing. But you have a neat sleeve. Like mm-hmm. the game is labeled itself. Like there, there are like storage cases and containers and stuff. Yeah, but so I think it is exclusively an American thing because um, if you order one of these games from Japan, mm-hmm. you will get the original box, and they'll even like they'll they all have shrink wrap machines. Every store in Japan will have a shrink wrap machine, and they'll just re-shrink the game. And it almost looks brand new. I've received several games that were marked used on eBay, but when I receive them, like, wow, this is shrink wrapped. What the hell? You know, I didn't buy a shrink wrapped Super Mario Brothers three. I mean, it's it's been used, but that's how much they care for the packaging. And yeah, I think it's just an exclusively an American thing. Like our minds just just think cardboard. Yeah, recycle that crap. It's well, garbage. It's an interesting intersection because I think that in the case of board games, they started out as really just a way to hold the components and this game has a lot yeah. of empty space just yeah this this, this right here when, is not used when you talk about a video game or whatever the the object itself is the cartridge or the cd or whatever other media the game finds itself to be on a, uh, a board game without a box <clears throat> has nothing to like bind its components together really and it feels like less of a game mm-hmm so it, it is, like, it's an interesting kind of, like, intersection between, like, functionality and packaging and art. It's also just, like, a fine, like, 100%. It's, like, a great opportunity to say something about your game. Like, you get that wonderful big palette, kind of like, you know, people used to talk about the old records and how they moved to, to CDs. Like, all that wonderful art got shrunk down and, for the most part, lost. A board game can still have that opportunity to really like tell you what the game is in a, a single strong image. 
Um, yeah, and it's interesting to note that um, uh, this this sentiment is actually pretty old. Like, Avalon Hill did their bookcase series. They designed their boxes to uh, not stand out from a bookshelf. Um, and you also have the Aaliyah Big Box series. Um, and that, that is a segue uh, to uh, our games section. Uh, very short this time, we're only really going to talk about two games. And one of them is an Aaliyah uh, big box game. That is Macau, uh, Steffenfeld 2009. Uh, Tom, can you uh, explain a little bit about Macau? It's a point salad game. It is a game where there's a board and there's a lot of opportunities to score points. Somehow it feels less point salad-y than other Stefan Feld games. Yeah, yeah, it's a little strange that you call it a point salad when we didn't really score points until the last half of the game. Yeah, but you score points by building in the city, you score points by shipping stuff, you score points by taking actions, in the city like and none of that is going to make any sense at all to our listener unless she happens to have listened to or uh, played macau yeah yeah i mean it it's uh it's less point salady in comparison to feld's other games but you know it's it's still a feld game uh well so the most interesting thing about this game is um it's it's action mechanism uh where uh one player will roll some dice they're all keyed to different color cubes uh these are the action cubes and you have a little rondel. Uh, the rondel is uh, keyed to one through six, and you'll select two of these dice and put cubes equal to that dice value on the rondel. So what this means is that if you go for higher numbers, you'll have access to those cubes in later turns, but you'll have more of them, uh, but you won't have them earlier in the game. You know, if you only pick one, you'll get one action uh, immediately. If you can't fill up the rondel as it passes over these empty spaces, you'll get punished. You'll get um, a penalty to your score. Uh, it, it provides the kind of um, puzzle that people look for in Feld games, where it's a combination of long-term planning and early initiative. Uh, do you have anything to add on to that, Tom? It was one of my one of the better uh, Aaliyah Big Box and one of the better Felt games I think that I've played. Really? Okay. So Castles of Burgundy, uh, Trajan, Felt, you know, both Felt games. Uh, only Castles of Burg- Burgundy is an Aaliyah game. Um, I can't think of the other Aaliyah games off the top of my head, but I know we've played a few of them. Puerto Rico. Ah, Port- uh, yes, Puerto Rico. Um, not a big fan of Puerto Rico, but only because I think Race for the Galaxy does it so much better. Uh, I did not enjoy Macau all that much. Is that because you got robbed? Well, Tom did beat me by one whole point. Um, <laughs> uh, I felt really bad about that. But no, it's uh, it was it was more like the game didn't feel all that cohesive. There's a lot of elements of the game I feel don't work incredibly well. Uh, the big thing is how turn order works. You have this you have this space that they call the wall. And you could spend action cubes to move up on the wall. In a later, if this game came out later, Feld would have tied like some sort of scoring value to the wall. Mm-hmm. There's no scoring value to this wall. It is just for turn order. And in a three-player game, it's, it's very expensive to go up. On it the is wall, very too. expensive to go up on the wall. So it's just kind of it's a space that you dump unused actions into. And I never felt I've never felt the wall was necessary. Turn order didn't seem to matter that much in a three-player game. Uh, because there's always there's plenty of options for you to draft cards when they come up, 
Um, there's never really a rush to get into first because um, just the way the action cube distribution is, the city felt relatively open for, for much of the game. Um, I, I could have won had I just gotten one more tile, and I'll just recognize that as you outplaying me. But uh, <laughs> overall, the game was just kind of was just kind of long and dry. If so, Tom Vassell is uh, known for hating on Mediterranean cube trading games. Whenever he says that, he must be thinking about Macau because that's how it felt to me. There is a certain lack of soul to the game. It doesn't necessarily feel like it all comes together. But I can think easily of, of many games that I really, really didn't like and felt like had the same problem that Macau had. Like, not really any redeeming quality that I could appreciate, like Snedonia. Some, something of a similar experience to me, but just without any kind of, like, redeeming characteristic whatever. Well, at least in Macau, it doesn't play itself. You actually have an opportunity to do something, uh, unlike Snedonia. Well, you um, are on the clock in both games. Sure, 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 yeah, but uh, Snowdonia is a game whose catch-up mechanism, or I guess the in-game timer, just makes you feel like a dummy. I kind of felt like the systems fit together about as well as Mombasa did, and did not have kind of the the theme that I found to be particularly troubling that was in Mombasa, mm-hmm. and is not in, in Macau. Although Macau covers a period of, of time and a, uh, a substance that isn't particularly pleasant for, for the people involved. Yeah, but uh, Macau abstracts it to the point where the various European cities that you're dropping cubes off at are just, like, dots in an ocean. Floating in the boat water. It's, uh, it's a very ugly game, and uh, if you'll excuse me, Tom, I'm going to look up Macau real quick. I want to see if Clemens Franz did the art, because that is... That is the formula for a dry late aughts euro. Mm. And no, no, Macau has been uh, redeemed just a little bit in my eyes. They didn't stoop that low. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Tom, is there anything else you want to add on to Macau before we move on? No. All right. Uh, the other game we played, it's uh, it was a slow um, holiday weekend. Well, I played a uh, game of Fuse. Uh, Fuse, okay. I know nothing about that, Tom. Why don't you fill me in? Fuse is a pure cooperative, real-time game put out by Renegade. Uh, The designer is escaping me at the moment. But it is a uh, game where you are rolling dice and then trying to solve puzzles with them, you and your teammates. The theming is that you are trying to solve, uh, to defuse a bomb. That's the title, Fuse. Kane Klinko, uh, name of the designer. Uh, continue on, please. And you are trying to do so within 10 minutes, or the bomb will blow up and you will lose the game, presumably because you will have died. Oh, Tom, this is the designer of Covert, uh, another game that we tried to get to the table and just just, just couldn't teach it. Just couldn't um, get it past uh, a couple people's heads. Yeah, interesting. I, I also see uh, Dead Men Tell, Tell No Tales and Flip Chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, this guy, so, this guy sees all right. Yeah, he's got that's a pretty solid record in terms of game design, especially like recent game design. But to return to Fuse, um, it is pretty much dead simple. You'll have a few cards in front of you, and each of those cards will basically say on it, "I want these dice." 
or I want this one dice in particular, or I want these dice in this order, or I want, you know, all of the dice you put on this card to be of a particular color or number or whatever. All of the dice are uh, come from a common bag, which holds, I believe, five dice uh, of each color. There are, are four or five colors, and uh, they are ordinarily numbered one through six, six-sided die. The twist, though, is that everybody has to take a die, and it's real time, kind of like Galaxy Trucker. You have to fit it onto your one of your bomb cards. And if you can't, then basically the whole team kind of loses. Okay. Because uh, when you screw up, when you can't apply a die to what you're trying to build, then you roll it, and then you lose the die that you just rolled, and then everybody else has to, not may, but must, lose a number of either the uh, a die of the number that you rolled or of the color that you that you rolled what um what counts as the timer is it like a app okay it's an app um any 10 minute timer would do mm-hmm. though. is it one of those uh fancy apps where they've got like the sound effects and does it create ambiance yes there is uh th- there are like police law enforcement like kind of sci-fi sireny type stuff coming on it sounds like it- it's the kind of like ambiance that would be created from a tense scene in like a final fantasy video game okay where like there's just some kind of like cheesy synth music that's going on in the background and like maybe some low level like radio chatter in the background or you know something like that i can tell that you listener are are calling this up in your own mind right now you're hearing the chatter the kind of thing Okay, uh, how does it fit in with other real-time co-op games like um, we'll Cookout or, no, Kitchen Rush. Uh, Kitchen Rush. Kitchen Rush is so, so much more complex. Well, Kitchen yeah, Rush is. is so un- unbelievably oh. more complex. Well, what about uh, Meeple Circus? Um, Me- Meeple Circus has this almost kind of like comic element to it, which is entirely lacking in in uh, Fuse. Meeple Circus can be kind of funny. It's also not a co-op, but that's neither here nor uh, Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but Fuse is not a funny game. All right. Fuse is a game that may make you hate someone. Okay, all right. Uh, more on that later. But, um, I mean, would you at least say that, like, Fuse is 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 fair? Like, if you, if you screw up in Fuse, is it something that you recognize... Uh, or do you think it comes down to, to luck? No, nah, there's like so many ways to screw up that aren't really your fault. Like you could be waiting for one of the three available yellow dice to come out after turn after turn after turn. And then eventually you just can't, you know, you can't wait anymore. You're out of like punting moves. And when you can't punt anymore, then your your board system or your board position begins to degrade, and unfortunately, that means so does everybody else's. Well, I guess in, in that case, do you think it like it creates meaningful drama? As I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, the frustration is real there, but mm-hmm. to be honest, it felt when we won like we won because somebody rolled a two when we really needed them to roll a two. And the other times when we lost, they just didn't roll the two at the appropriate time. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah, Fuse. I will have to uh, uh, check it out next time you guys play it. Not really big on co-ops, but I love any scenario that gives me an opportunity to yell at my friends. And hey, look at that. A nice segue into uh, our Friday night six-player 14-point game of Twilight Imperium. Started at 7, ended prematurely at 2 a.m. We we did end at about uh, 10 points. Um, 
We called it a draw, uh, myself and another player. I do not acknowledge defeat. <laughs> okay, you know, you could say that, but uh, my army is already, like, marching onto your surface. I can and do say that. I do not acknowledge defeat. Yeah, yeah, Twilight Imperium for a game that we have mentioned every single, uh, you know, one of these uh, four episodes. Um, Tom, do you, do you think anything really needs to be said about the game? Yeah, or? I think that we should talk a little bit about the merits of the game because there were some quite positive things that happened as well as some things that were not as positive. Okay, well, why don't you start off while I uh, take a sip of water and get my thoughts together? Well, Twilight Imperium as you likely know, is a competitive game between three to six players where you're trying to conquer the universe using one of the factions that are available in the game. The great part about Twilight Imperium is that if you have a sufficiently liberal and kind of open mindset, this game really has everything that you could want in a board game you know you can wheel and deal you can develop tech you can create like an entirely unique experience to what you are doing what you want to do and then really like although there can be some kind of like random screw jobs here and there there are randomly dealt out out cards that can be used against you and then dice unfortunately to my view is all uh, i'm sorry is is all that is used in combat combat is dice rolls so if you're the kind of player that you know knows that you're not going to be able to beat the dice because you're just a cursed human being then this might be kind of a rough game for you although not as rough as you might imagine combat is usually relatively infrequent and um somewhat predictable when when it does happen yeah uh combat is rare just because of the um the, the penalties the game naturally imposes on you. Uh, when you activate a system to move ships in there, you kind of lock that system down, which limits, um, you know, future mobility. Uh, and then you have to spend money to even, like, real, I mean, in real terms, you have to, like, there's a real opportunity cost for activating anything. Yeah, it's a, he- a heavy opportunity cost because the, the, uh, uh, the resources you use to move ships is rare and expensive, uh, the resources you spend to create ships is rare and expensive. And even then, like, invading someone doesn't really guarantee that you get anything. And if you do get it, it's unavailable for you until the next turn, which gives someone else an opportunity to take it from you. Ideally, next turn, you, you'll you'll have it available. Hopefully, like, you know, nothing unfortunate will happen to you. There's a lot of things that, that could occur. Um it's a game where you're trying to score points. Ordinarily, you're trying to score 10 points. And you'll score a point by doing something that the game tells you to do. Like to spend a certain amount of currency. Or to have a certain amount of worlds in, in whatever confrontation. To assume certain positions on the map. To do like many different things. And the amount of variety between what the game is rewarding you for doing. And the means with which you will have it at your disposal and what your opponents will have in your disposal are, are all like more or less like random and not determined until the very start of the game. So every single game of Twilight Imperium feels extremely different from every other game that you've played. 
Yeah, and and I think uh, I think the point system is both its greatest strength and its weakness. Twilight Imperium, in my mind, is like the ideal four uh, X experience in board game form. Four uh, X being uh, expand, exploit, explore, uh, e- explore and exterminate. A very popular uh, subgenre of strategy games, uh, largely on PC because computers can handle all of the uh, calculations in the background allowing you to focus on the game itself. You have probably played Civilization, you have probably played uh, Masters of Orion, um, um, Age of Wonders, you know, these these games about like conquering the world with a unique faction uh, and exploiting your enemies and Twilight, Twilight Imperium offers all of these opportunities in a massive package uh, but Tom when you described it as like conquering the galaxy and I think even I think even the box describes it as conquering the galaxy. You you really don't care about conquering. You only care about scoring points. Um, and I'm I'm happy that the group we formed uh, we we stress very carefully. This is a game about scoring points. It is not a game about punching your neighbors unless it scores you a point. It is not a game about um, and it often will. I mean, yeah. if you can like if you're looking for that pretext, then often you will find it. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, though, if you play it like uh, like Axis and Allies, if you play it as just any kind of dudes on a map war game, you'll be sorely disappointed uh, because, as we previously mentioned, the resources in this game are tight, and the two weakest players are almost always stronger than, like, the number one strongest player. Meaning to say, if you make yourself a target and more than one of your opponents decides to go after you, then you are in a tough spot indeed. Yep, ab- absolutely, and in fact, that uh, that kind of happened um, in our game. Uh, so, Tom, without uh, naming names, pointing fingers, um, <laughs> what, what, what can you say about our poor, unfortunate, drawn-out game? Well... It went off the rails when one player kind of flew off the handle. Something bad happened to this player, and full disclosure, it happened, you know, at my hand. Launched a little attack, made it clear that it was an attack that was designed to uh, score a point. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a target of opportunity and meant to score a point. Uh, I made an offer in compromise to get something out of it in lieu of scoring my point through that way but negotiations did not make it very far and hey points a point you got to get points in order to win the game but the other uh, my opponent did not see it that way uh my opponent saw it as unprovoked and exploitive and in in fairness to him it was both of those things uh but to my opponent the only justifiable thing that he could seek to do would be to take this attack and respond to it by completely throwing the game. Absolutely throwing it to the point where he would have had no hope whatsoever of winning. In fact, with the actions that my opponent took in this, there's no way that he could have even done well. Scored half of the points that were necessary in order to win the game, let alone compete for, for victory. Yeah, we uh, we spoke about this in the last episode on how uh, TI4 is a player-regulated game uh, where everybody needs to come to the table on an unspoken contract of we will do the best that we can. Um, and if that contract breaks, the entire game falls apart. What, like, what happened the other night is the horror stories that are told 
for why TI4 is actually a bad game. And uh, it did kind of ruin it for me, and it definitely ruined it for, like, him, for for my opponent. But the other four players were still actually kind of, like, marvelously just, like, going on and continuing to have a game. It's just that one-third of the known universe was basically on fire and never went out. Frankly, the, the most remarkable thing is that with that happening, it wasn't taken advantage of more by by our other opponents and and sure enough i was in a position well we were all in a position to do so it's just that we had more important things to focus on winning the game um and it's it is it is part of why i really enjoy uh ti4 from a respectable distance uh the game has some of the lowest lows i've seen in the board game and also like the the highs are incredible and i started out this game with a disastrous first turn. Um, in your first turn of Twilight Imperium, you want to control as many planets as you can because you need that resource generation, which you're only really going to see next turn. Uh, but the the first the, the first player, the person who played the first action, um, activated a tech research. Every kind of like Puerto Rico, uh, kind of like Race for the Galaxy. Everyone will draft these roll cards. And all the other players can activate them uh, as well. As a side note, it's actually directly inspired by Puerto Rico. Okay, yep, uh-huh, that's correct. So my my opponent to my right, uh, who probably who's going to be my main rival for much of the game, he developed a key tech that let him push uh, two spaces into my direct path and take important planets that I was aiming for. Uh, so right, right away, right off the bat, I was kind of up against the wall against a... Um, a strong player uh, who's playing Earth. And you know, if you haven't played this game, Earth has... Earth it, is one or two er, in terms of yeah, like, in, in ter- Yeah, in terms of like ranking, I don't believe in ranking systems, but in terms of ranking, Earth is like number one or number two. They have an unstoppable infantry. And so already I'm up against the wall. Do you not like ranking systems or do you not just ag- like acknowledging that one or two of these factions are definitely better than all the other factions? Uh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Okay. I, uh, you know, ex- I don't think that we need to get like a, a Super Smash Brothers tier list where like, you know, some characters, everybody just wants to dump on because they think they're garbage and aren't creative enough to like really see what the implications are. But like, it's okay to say like, a couple of these guys are like definitely better than than some of these other guys. Yes, yes, that's I, I can admit to that. My problem with ranking systems in general is that um, it assumes everything happens in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes more sense for fighting games where it just comes down to player skill, and there's really like there's really if two evenly matched players, uh, one is playing. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah if one is playing um, uh, Meta Knight. And the other one is playing, I don't know, Donkey Kong. The Meta Knight player or the Fox player is is always going to beat Donkey Kong uh, between two evenly matched players. That's just... But once you throw hammers and bombs in there... <laughs> well, but this is a board game podcast, not a video game podcast. So yeah, it, it Twilight apl- Imperium is a game about hammers and bombs. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, so in Twilight Imperium, like, nothing exists in a vacuum. I was up against a wall... I made a critical error of only grabbing two planets when I could have grabbed three. Um, I didn't build as aggressively as I should. So I honestly thought I was knocked out of the game by the um, by the second turn. Uh, the second out of like 10 or 11, you know, eight-hour turns. Uh, but I recovered. I recovered because I, I made some posturing. You know, I, I puffed up like a cat 
and uh, and yelled at a couple of players, all, all all in the game, you know, all in good fun. I I tried to make that clear. Um, and I made. I distinctly remember you screaming. You are the one who is playing irrationally, and that's bugging me. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did say that, but again, like I just, I, we said last episode that Ti Four is a game of strategic so whining. That was your strategic that was, whining. That was my, and, like, and it works, Lyles. It works. You know, if I remember him saying no to you every single time until like the very end, and then like attacking you a couple of times. Well, I, at the very end, I had him against the ropes. Um, <laughs> sure, you did. Hey, you, you, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Who, who, who had who had ten points and who had three? <laughs> All right, uh, you know. yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I still do not acknowledge defeat. You did not beat me. <laughs> well, well, Tom, we're getting a little off track. Um, is is there is there anything you want to uh, say about TI four before we get into the main topic? Well, I if you are inclined to have a game that is not always going to be one hundred percent controllable, and we'll give you like all of the full like scope and action of like a Dune novel or like. Lord of the Rings or like one of these just grand like epics about like you know the fate of empire and like the deaths of kings and all of that that cool nerdy stuff that we love to read about I'd really encourage you listener to give it a try uh it has everything that you could want in that kind of a board game if you give it a chance mm-hmm, but you, but you you need to approach it cautiously um, and you need a group of trusting friends to to really bring out uh, the magic behind TI four because it's just yeah you got to remember there's going to be five losers yeah, like, yeah. you know there are going to be five losers there... walking out of that game you know somebody's got to be Boromir or, or whatever the guy somebody's got to go crazy and like die at the end of book one to make mm-hmm. the thing like really tense it's probably it's not fun being boromir it's not fun being the guy that always got stabbed by boromir or whatever but yeah but really it's it's like the experience there's it is it is unmatched um it is the the yeah. the trashiest of the ameritrash but so much more it is it's like it's really trashy like you know if you're looking for a really tight kind of deterministic experience where you know, intelligent play takes it almost every single time, then you want, like, Food Chain Magnate, or yeah. you want Indonesia, or yeah. you want some game where there's going to be very little luck involved, and that to the extent that you interact with your players, there's not, like, a lot of, like, unfair moves. Like, there's not a lot of moves that you you can't really see coming. But Twilight Imperium, whew, man... There are, there are some twists and turns. There's some there's some red weddings, like you know, there are some some hidden bombs that just go off and like finding them is just fun. It's a really fun way to spend a Saturday every couple of months at least. Y- yes, yes, as I as I've said uh, in a previous episode, it, it is my favorite game that I only want to play every 3 or 4 months. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to stretch our legs and sip some water before we get on to the main topic, which is Tom tilting, in particular, tilting during Twilight Imperium. Topic of tilting out. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Tom, um, when, when you approached me uh, 45 minutes ago and said, I want to talk about tilting, um, I was thinking that uh, y- you were proposing a Don Quixote um, fan club? Well, yeah, a lot of uh, tilt is a, a word with, with many different meanings. You can tilt a, a lot of which are, you know, tangential or adjacent to board game. You can tilt a pinball machine. When you tilt a pinball machine, it doesn't work anymore. All right, well, why don't you explain to me how tilt relates to board games? Tilt relates to gaming, tabletop gaming generally, coming from the world of gambling. When you are on tilt, you have suffered such dramatic losses at a prior point of the game that it's beginning to unduly, or maybe it's it's not just beginning, it's, it's completely influencing your decision making the classic tilt occurs in a game of poker where you lose a massive massive pot and uh, are left with very little left and feeling desperate and vulnerable you lash out and often the lashing out comes in the form of like reckless bets like going all in when you shouldn't raising or re-raising on like bluffs that are obvious or should seem to be obvious but the key thing is that it's not that you think it's obvious or that it's not obvious or whatever you're just blindly trying to like quote get back into the game or to do like something so is this like uh is this like an ego thing is like is this just like a, a fancy way called an ego trip ultimately yeah because when we're talking about money you know it's pretty easy to associate that with ego it feels good in a poker game to have a huge stack of chips it means that you have a lot of money when somebody takes a lot of money from you it is quite natural to be upset the only people that don't really get upset when they lose a huge hand are the ones that, you know, turn around, get into their limousine, and go back on their fancy plane, and realize that, you know, I still have plenty of money. And that's not all of us. It's certainly not either of us playing in this, playing any of these games that I'm aware of anyway, or either of the two of us. Yeah, it, 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 you know, it's, it's certainly to say that uh, the people that gambling targets the hardest are the people who you don't have anything to lose. But when we talk about tabletop games, it is pretty common for tabletop gamers to associate their sense of identity and self-worth with their ability to at least play a game effectively. Deep down, we all like playing these games at least a little bit, because we feel like we're kind of good at them. You know, if you if you weren't good at the game, or any of these games, then it wouldn't feel very good to play them. And I have a hard time imagining that people would do that to themselves over and over and over and over and over again. I know people that aren't good at certain types of games. I'm one of them. Everybody is one of them. I know some people that just don't enjoy games uh, of a certain stripe because they don't think of themselves as being very good at them or because they just don't like that type of game for other reasons, despite the fact that they are good at them and win at them easily. But when it comes down to it, everybody has that kind of like, every gamer has that little button that can get pushed and if you you know if it if once that game gets pushed like you know you're gonna get mad once that button is is triggered it's quite easy to to experience an emotional reaction where it's not helpful 
and where it's ultimately destructive not only to the game that you're playing and the positions that you're trying to advance, but also to the relationships that you're having with your opponents. And hopefully everyone acknowledges that the relationship with your opponents, presumably your friends or acquaintances at least, is much more important than how you do at a game where literally nothing is at stake. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we both have a similar experience of this with um, the same designer, uh, Vladl Shavadl. Um For for me, it's through the ages. Uh, for you, it was it was Dungeon Pets. Dungeon Pets of all things, which we played recently, and you know it's funny, but my Dungeon Pets experience came like you know at the end of a long day of gaming, and I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I realized that I completely fouled up the game. And we were going into the last turns, and I kind of just threw up my hands, and I said, there's no way that I can, like, fix, you know, the problems that I've made for myself. Like, I am just going to bow out. And to be honest, I've rarely been more ashamed of myself than when I sort of admitted defeat. Because the look on, you know, everybody's face was one of like, oh, come on, you know, just suck it up. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like the same for me uh, for Through the Ages. Um, you know, it's while it's a game that lasts a little bit longer than Dungeon Pets, typically typically going like two to three hours. Uh, it's a game that has really climactic final turns where all of the powerful wars come out, um, where events, all the big scoring events come out, uh, and I was I was targeted by a war uh, that would have uh, put me in dead last. But I I think. In both scenarios, in both of our scenarios, had we actually finished the game, we would have ended up in a better place than we thought we were. It's just that, you know, in that moment where our thoughts are running wild, where emotions are running high, when faced with a seemingly uh, insurmountable odds, we just shut down. (laughs) Yeah, and emotionally, we definitely would have been in a better position to acknowledge you know we're not going to win this game we're not even going to do well at all but you know at least we're going to to finish it you know we're going to be that 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 one you know team in the sled dog race that only finishes because you have the main characters helping you get across the finish line instead of going through the ice right and and it is embarrassing it is embarrassing just call the game because um there are very few games that don't rely on all the players playing. You know, there are very few games where you can't just say, like, I quit, and then everyone else is allowed to continue. Um, as it would happen through the ages is one of those games that allows, like, you know, a give-up button. Although, practically speaking, there might as well not even really be there, because once one of your players has said, okay, I'm permanently compromised, there's nothing that I can do to recover, I would like to stop, please, then usually your friends will say, you know, first, oh, come on. And then second, well, all right, you know, if you don't want to keep playing, then we're not going to make you. We're just going to do something else that hopefully we can all enjoy. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's... uh... If I could say one more thing about Through the Ages. Oh, what's that? It is an acknowledged weakness in Through the Ages that a civilization can be permanently compromised. Mm Mm-hmm. Once they're permanently compromised, they literally just become like a big like banker's bag full of money and victory points and stuff that a lucky player can just take and take and take and take and take and take and, take, and that will like swing the game. So technically speaking, at least in the online community, 
there's absolutely nothing wrong with resigning a game that you know your only role in will be to to feed yeah to, yeah, in, yeah, in, you, yeah if you've become a you in, know if in, you become a hamburger in, then you may as well just you know give up yeah in in video game terms they call that uh feeding uh, especially like the the mobos like league of legends where one player who just keeps dying to the enemies will give the enemies gold which makes them exponentially stronger and yeah through the ages being a uh a relatively um um deliberately designed euro there's there's no way to like permanently knock a player out of the game as you could in Twilight Imperium. So instead, you just keep regenerating a small bag of resources that the other players will just take from you. Or you'll have a big bag of resources that you take in to the end, like victory points. That if so- a few players get lucky, then they will just take all you know not all of them, but enough to swing the game. Certainly. Yeah, it's why I really like. Vlada as a designer like not all of his games have hit for me um mage knight was a a couple of good ideas wrapped in a just a very kind of like bland uh procedural which may be why it's available at shopgoodwill.com for 22 dollars yeah hop on that seven Um, days bids left people yeah yeah but um vlada kind of kind of understands how to make games emotional um, there is not a single one of his games that I've played that just, uh, uh, that, that aren't mean. Kind of soulless. Like, they're not soulless. Yeah, right, yeah, I they're, mean, they're, like. they're full of life, you know. Yeah. It, all of his games are, like, kind of mean, but very procedural, well-balanced, and, uh, you, you can strategize, but there's just that, that tiny dash of luck. Um, you think of Galaxy Trucker? Well, okay. Well, Galaxy Trucker is the the opposite spectrum, where it is complete chaotic nonsense that coalesces into just like it's Tom. If I can, if I can attribute food to board games, Galaxy Trucker is a paella. All right, mm-hmm. rice, seafood, vegetables, just like a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't want to throw together in a pot, and it just comes out perfectly. It's mm. um. So, Tom, when you originally came to me, when you originally proposed this, you wanted to call it uh, Games That Really Do End Friendships. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when I was in the Navy, I, I, I wasn't, like, really playing games. I was, I was playing tabletop games. I was playing RPGs. Uh, and there were a couple of moments where uh, uh, tempers flared. I may have gotten kicked out of a group or two, or at least proposed to, to have done to me. Um, but you've been, you've been gaming longer than I have. You've been gaming uh, both in Magic: The Gathering and um, yeah, just War- and Warhammer 40k, uh, both games that I think have really uh, contentious communities. Do, do you have any stories to tell? I do, but I will say that I am the villain in almost all of them. Self-acknowledged to have behaved incredibly badly uh, in hindsight with the situations I've encountered. There is a local Magic the Gathering group that a few years back, actually it was like 10 years ago now, I guess, started getting into what at the time was Elder Dragon Highlander. And I got into it too, um, despite living several hours away. And I had a grand old time playing with my deck, which I thought was just you know, perfectly, perfectly fun and reasonable. But the thing is, is that Elder Dragon Highlander is a game with uh, much less variation in it 
it's a format with much less variety to it than than sometimes people realize. You have to have like one keystone card called your general in it, and your the rest of your deck is just basically like nonsense. Everything is like one-offs, okay? So, but your general, your commander, that's the one thing that you know that you'll always have. My commander uh, in other varieties of the deck ended up being completely broken. Um, mine did not like take advantage of the things that the other decks took advantage of, but, uh, in, in certain iterations of the deck that I was playing, like it was just completely unfun. And without me, the, the group came to a decision that that commander was just going to be banned. And man, the online tirade that I went on when I found out about that, I just still cringe at to this day like you know should have just played something else like you know should have just been happy to like have the opportunity to play i may have said in my rant that i was the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. just you could laugh it's okay to laugh when, <laughs> I, when well, someone says something stupid like that well it's really i just don't want that image of my head of, of you with a baby's body in it. <laughs> I mean, tossed out with the bathwater. Um, in in Warhammer 40k, I have made uh, prepubescent children that are playing with me cry on multiple occasions. I own that as a person that, like, I, you know, somebody came up to play a game of 40k with me with their wide little kitty eyes and their immaculately hand-painted army, and I just crushed them. Yeah, yeah, you were kind of uh, infamous for your um, uh, who, who are the little the anime inspired race with the big guns and the mechs. The Tau. Yes, who yeah. At, at the time that I played them, were not actually super super powerful, but I wanted to take a I wanted a challenge. Like you know, I wanted to take the army that people thought was not very good and like see how far I could take it, and I took it pretty damn far. Yeah, including. You know, to the point where I was making children weep. Yep, and then as GW is wont to do, they updated the codex and suddenly you had the most powerful army on the block. As an aside, I will say, I, I think that was the worst thing that could have possibly happened to my enjoyment of that game. The third edition codex uh, for Tal was something that you could be quite proud of when you won, like you definitely won because you took advantage of what was made available to you in in the fifth edition codex that was released like 10 years later you didn't really have to do anything special you just had to show up with the right models and you didn't really have to pay a lot of attention to abstract concepts called or you know such as like firing lanes targeting priority um you know taking full advantage of of cover and obscuring terrain like you felt in the third edition, like a real and true tactician that was trying to, to accomplish a goal. In fifth edition, it really did come into like its own as sort of just an anime BS, like lots of lasers and big guns sort of codex. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never got into Warhammer 40k. I tried, just couldn't really do it, just because it, it, it felt like... Uh... Uh, it, it it felt like a joke a jokester's idea for how the British conduct war. Um, I'm going to make an obscure reference here. I don't know if anyone has seen the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the film, uh, but there is in the end you find out that like the British commander of this small little town and the Turkish lord will fight back and forth. They'll just cause chaos 
to keep their people in line. They're like, okay, I will win Tuesday if you let me win Wednesday. And that's how I feel War Warhammer 40k comes out. It's like, alright, I'm going to make a shot at you. Um, okay, my shot is on target. I'm going to test your armor. Okay, I pierce your armor. Now I'm going to test your toughness. Uh, you failed your toughness, so I kill one guy and pin your tank. Is that... Am I, am oh, I, no, obviously I feel completely differently about it. But, I mean, you, like, at the time... You played no war games that I was aware of. Now, like, years on, you play many different war games. And uh, Warhammer 40k might hold a different sort of appeal to you. But, like, it's not a it's not a great game. It's certainly not a perfect one. It's a game where, you know, you roll a bunch of dice and hope that your numbers come up more often than the other guys. And there's a there are many ways to break it, like, either by... Um, playing footsie with the rules or by maximizing the amount of dice that you roll or by making it like almost impossible for you to fail, you know, your dice rolls uh, instead of just trying to achieve a victory through superior like tactics. Yeah. So to kind of like bring it back into the, uh, the subject of tilting. Um, I, I actually, I was... just as a final note, like I completely forgot about it now, but after that fifth edition uh, codex came out, um, nobody, people stopped wanting to play the same army that I had played for years. Like, I had played my Tau army since 2010 and loved it and loved every minute of it and had painted, like, every model in that army. But by spring of 2013, I guess, um, when the new models came out and within a year after it became so, um infamous for being overpowered like opponents would take a look at my army and just say i don't you know i'm not going to play another game against uh against this army like i'm you know i'm i'm done playing against tau or yeah. like and so a few of them that would say i will play against you but i know that i cannot win uh -huh, like, right. which somewhat removes the the pleasure out yeah. of play, playing at all or and certainly out of beating them yeah, so you know, to to wrap this back into the uh, the subject of hand, um, the the twelve year old <laughs> that you made cry, um, he went into the game with a a lot of swagger, you know, more swagger than I could ever say I've had in my entire life. Uh, he had these um, these uh, not Rao Partha, who did like the super duper models for Warhammer Forge World. Yeah, they, he had yeah. like these Forge World orc models yeah he had a very specific army composition and, yeah, and he, he fully came, painted too fully painted he came in with like this big smug smile on his face is like i'm gonna knock you down very proud of that army 60 minutes later the game was already decided hell 30 minutes later the game is probably probably already decided right um and it's i i think one of the the toughest things about board gaming um is uh leaving your package behind when you come into a game uh, because, you know, unlike gambling, where money is finite, guys, you know, um, in board games, you always start fresh. Uh, each game is a new experience, an experience to learn, grow, and do better. But sometimes we bring, like, old grudges. We reopen old wounds when we come into a game. We say, oh, God, I'm sitting next to Tom in Twilight Imperium. If he attacks me, I swear to God, I'm going to wig out. And sometimes Justin Brown will um, sort of like, hey, you remember that time when, uh, you know, Tom did that thing to you? I, hey, like I 
I said, man, you got Pepperidge Farms. Remember? Uh-huh. Hey, like I said, you know, in these games, you you gotta you gotta antagonize. It's it's just like poker. All right, you have to learn to read your opponents. Um, I will never understand how like you could have taken such a suddenly Machiavellian turn and yet be so awful. Like, really awful. Like, if if you can manipulate people this well, why do you suck so much at Avalon? <laughs> because at, because the resistance is an incredibly mathy and annoying game. <laughs> there, there's, there's a meta to the resistance that I refuse to learn. Uh, it, you know, like, like no, you must, you must vote no when this situation arrives. Um, and what will often happen is I'll make the wrong decision and it throws the entire game into turmoil. Well, I'm glad that you can at least recognize that instead of doing what you did before, which is just scream at people about how there isn't actually any information on which to base your decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, the resistance, not for me. Uh, but, Tom, how, how, can we, how can we take the lessons? Well, the thing is, is that deep down, like, we're all that 12-year-old boy. We all have, like, kind of, like, that that swagger and pride about something and it's probably better for everyone if it just doesn't touch on gaming whatever that your that sense of self-worth and and pride is but inevitably like you know a gamer is going to be someone who thinks that they have a shot at winning and should win if they make the decisions and maybe you know even if they're the best player at the table and sometimes you know they'll think I am the best, you know, I'm playing the best game, I have the best game, and I, I therefore deserve to win if these, you know, people would just get out of my way. Like, if these, if they'd stop interfering with me, then I would show everyone that I am the best and everyone would acknowledge that I am the best. So, it's it's interesting this situation came up because there there was a big thread on Board Game Geek about how to unwind after a game, you know, like... Like, what activities can you take with the players to uh, reduce frustration? And the the player um, in question from our TI four game, you know, you guys, you guys shook. There, there were some apologies going on. It, it may have not, it may not have been with as much conviction as you wanted or expected. Well, but we, we did, we did have a conversation. We talked about the game. Yeah. We talked about the mistakes we made about how we could have done better. Uh, there was there was some dressing down by the grandpa of the group. I immediately felt validated because everyone agreed that, you know, everybody agreed that there was an overreaction toward what I did and that it went too far and that it got personal. But, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Situations like this are where the handshake really matters. I mean, it's kind of like a cliche, isn't it, that... You want to have a firm handshake, you know, and some people like try to make it out to be that it's an aggressive, an aggression thing. But I don't honestly, I don't think that it it is that I think it's just to show somebody that you're present, that you mean it like a really easy way to blow somebody off is to kind of offer them like a limp kind of like lifeless handshake, whereas... You know, if somebody's shaking your hand and you know you got, you know, their attention if they're, like, if they're trying. Or, like, look at somebody, you know, when you're addressing them. When you do not look at someone, then it is not, it's it's hard for the person to think, like, that you're being sincere in what you are saying. So if you say, I'm sorry, 
and then don't look at somebody when you're apologizing, then you don't really mean it. Yeah, it kind of goes against like our, our mammalian programming because, you know, in the animal world, uh, looking at someone is a sign of aggression. But um, it, c- come on, guys, we live in civilized society. Uh, look somebody in the eye when you're being sincere, shake their hand, just say, I'm sorry. Don't say, I'm sorry, but, or, you know, uh, I'm sorry, and, or I'm sorry that you felt offended. <laughs> just just be like, I, I, I apologize for my behavior. It won't happen again. That has gotten me out of so many bad situations. Right. Because, I mean, professionally, like, I have had to apologize to people. I've had to apologize for people. And there's just nothing better than coming in with, like, a full-throated, like, my bad. I, you know, I did wrong. I acknowledge that. And when you start to make excuses, when when the apologizer starts to put the blame on other factors or on the victim of the bad behavior themselves to kind of like justify it or maybe get sort of self-righteous, then it undermines the entire apology to the extent that like it basically the apology just doesn't do anything. And for what it's worth, Justin, I'm sorry that I said you were bad at playing code names that one time a couple of years ago. Do you there, remember how bad you got when there, I said you're bad at playing code names? Hey, that was another tilting out uh, moment, and don't apologize for that. I'm bad at playing code names. I like I. I was not trying to be funny. Uh-huh. I was bad too. I was bad. I felt like you lost us that game with your dumb clue. You lost us that game. Who? This man has seen. Every Harry Potter except for the last one. Like, come on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, guys, at the end of the day, it's just a game. You know, it's it's not life. Uh, your ego will survive. You'll live to the next day. I, I think... Some, and some games do, like, bring it out more yeah. than... Like, you know, Monopoly is influenced. Twilight Imperium, I think, is kind of infamous, too. Like, there is a line that... Diplomacy. Yeah, Diplomacy. But I'd encourage people to play those kinds of, like, really conflict-driven games because when you get that kind of, like, hot emotional, like, reaction and let it go at the end, like, having that kind of, like, bond with people that you went through that sort of struggle and uh, experience, regardless of whether or not you won, that's how you really, like, form a close friendship. Yeah. over gaming is yeah. that you you know you go in and you experience those highs and the lows and at the end the only person that really knows what you went through are your opponents or your your teammates yeah yeah it, it creates memories worth talking about you know because that that code names moment happened like what four years ago and we we still laugh about it uh, to this day <laughs> it's just, it gets funnier to mm-hmm. me as time goes on yeah. although it didn't seem funny at all at the time <laughs> well we were all we were also both tipsy <laughs> yeah it was certainly funny for our opponents to see yeah. us just like utterly self-destruct over yeah. code names yeah however i i feel vindicated because when i tell people that story they know immediately what i'm talking about <laughs> And I'm just going to leave it as a mystery. I'm just going to. Le- I'm not going to. I'm not going to elaborate it. I'm just going to leave it as a as a dangling mystery uh, to be told uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, catch us at a convention, listener, and we'll tell you about it. Yeah, hey, we'll be uh, we'll be at PAX uh, Unplugged. So you know, if you um, uh, if you see a fat black guy and uh, uh, a bald man with suspenders, uh, come seek us out. Yep. Play some games. Do you want to add anything else to? Um, 
to this time? I think that we've covered everything that I wanted to say. Is there any additional, anything else that you'd like to say? No, I think we uh, think we covered this uh, uh, better than I expected. So then that'll do it for us here at Table Topics. All right, yeah. Thanks, listener. Yep, you've been listening to an episode of Table Topics. Um, you know, maybe drop a like on the Facebook page. Uh, comments, concerns. I got an email: tabletopicspodcast at gmail I will read everything and probably respond in a snarky fashion. Thank you, and good night. You have been listening to Table Topics by Justin Brown and Thomas Lyles. New episodes every Wednesday. You can reach us at tabletopicspodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page at tabletopicspodcast. Bye.